Um, one thing I did want to tell you, though, about myself is coming through up through high school and even through college, I played basketball tons and tons and tons and tons, probably way too much. Went to a school of about 13,000 at the time. It's about 15,000 now. And I had, mm, I won't say I had no hope, I had no confidence in myself to play basketball for that school. Even though that was my dream in high school was to play college basketball, but didn't get to play. I played on the practice squad for two seasons. The coaches saw me playing in the gym, and we had like three different courts. You had the scrub court, the sort of good people court, and then like the basketball players and the coaches played on this court. And they were scoping out the courts one day, and they said, we need, we need some more players to play against our players. They said, hey, you, hey, what's your name, what's your name, what's your name? We need some more players over here. And so they called me over, and I played against the basketball players that day. And then the coaches asked me to come try out, and they said, okay, you want to work on our practice squad? I was like, oh, okay, okay. But I never, you know, really got into the swing of things. I never had enough hope or confidence in myself. And I'm curious, you know, in playing basketball, the point guard kind of just ran the show, right? The point guard just kind of runs the show. The coach might call a play, but some coaches allow the point guard to have a little more discretion. If the point guard sees something that he don't like, they'll just call a play. But we didn't call it anything that I remember. The point guard would just change. But in football, it's like called an audible, right? Like quarterback can call something else, even though the coach might have called something. Is that how it works? I'm not, I'm not sure. Is that how it works? Is there anything like that in soccer or or softball or baseball where, like, you call something that the coach didn't call on the fly? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Is, is it kind of something like that, maybe? Well, that's what I'm doing right now because I had something completely prepared, and then I listened to the second song, and I said, hey, man, we're going to change that, like, right now. So I want to read the first and second verse because, obviously, ministry teams and Brett Callen directed there did an awesome job on song selection. And this first, this, the second song, the song that we just finished, I want to just read verse 1, and we're going to read verse 2. So it says, in the midst of the darkness, you're the light that guides me through. Our eyes are on you. You are near to the broken. The weak find their strength in you. Our eyes are on you. When I'm lost in the madness, you're the peace that calms my soul. Our eyes are on you. You bring hope to the hopeless. You're the love that won't let go. Our eyes are on you. Now, ironically, this fits like perfect with the idea that we're seeing here in Jeremiah, because we have a people group that are struggling. They are struggling with God's faithfulness. They are struggling with ideas. I'm just putting my timer up. I'm not texting someone. Okay. So this fit perfectly. So I got to call, I got to call an audible here because this fits perfect with what these people are dealing with. And Jeremiah, the man, particularly this prophet, okay, who was the man who's holding the office of a prophet, I want to go over a few things that might help us understand the rest of our semester, the rest of the next few weeks up until spring break, that talk specifically about this book of Jeremiah. So I'm going to give you a few tidbits that might help us better understand and get a little bit more out of Jeremiah as we go through. And then we're going to talk at the end. I'm going to have you try to really kind of lock in because it's going to get kind of heavy and kind of academic. But any of you who know me, probably would say that, okay, I'm a relatively thoughtful person. Really, you know, I, like to, I like to kind of live in the trenches. I like to think about things on a fairly deep level. And I want to challenge your thinking, okay? Because you're thinking, feeling, being, growing, maturing people. And there's no reason why you can't think well for yourself, 
right? Not just simply swallow what somebody tells you, but put things in your mind, add the pieces together and say, hey, I can come to a reasonable conclusion on my own. It doesn't mean we buck authority, but it does mean we engage our thinking to make reasonable decisions and choices about what we believe. So as we progress through this, it's going to get heavy at the end. And I'll try to remind you to kind of like lock in with me and stay with me. So first, this man, Jeremiah. So in the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah particularly holds the office of a prophet. So a prophet is one who basically is a mouthpiece or spokesperson for God, okay? He's inspired, divinely inspired. So even though he's not passive, it's not as if God is on his back saying, boop, 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 typing in some messages, and then he goes, right? So he's not passive, but he is, in a sense, inspired by. He is so, in a sense, enthralled and captivated by God the Father. Wow, this is happening to me, and I'm speaking. I'm allowing God to speak through me. God's will and his plan and his purposes for his people. So primarily, we want to understand that this is the man that Jeremiah is. And as a person, what we understand from Scripture is Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's known as a man who is very tender, a man who is concerned about relationships. He wants to live in peace. He wants to kick his feet up, hug his wife, kiss his kids, and say, go play in the pool. It's a great day. Okay? He's a wonderful, kind of loving, soft, gentle, humble man. But yet, some of you who, all of you, are probably either in arts or sports to some degree. Some more than others and some less than others. And we've probably had coaches who were really relaxed, right? Or teachers who were really relaxed and calm. Touch the line, touch the line. Like, athletic stance. Not here. Here. Right? Really calm in how they do things. You should know the play. Go look, review it. You'll be all right. And then they go, what in the world is your problem? And all of a sudden, they just like get in your grill. You're like, Ooh. And you, you kind of don't know what to think. And for some of you, you probably go like, whatever, man, shut up. Why are you tripping? And some of you respond with, almost fear and dread and terror. And all of a sudden, everything that was distracting you from, from, from performing at your highest level has disappeared because that coach just read your mail, right? Ate your lunch. That teacher, that professor, whoever it is, that whoever it is that's an authority over you, they just, just ripped you a new one. And all of a sudden, all that stuff that was distracting you and not allowing you to focus and perform your best is gone. Some of you know what I mean when you say playing angry, or playing mad. When you're angry and upset, you can really think about nothing else, and you are so locked in. And for some people, being angry at something or mad at something is where they perform their best. Jeremiah, a soft-spoken, mild-mannered family man, wants to be a family man, so to speak, feet up at the pool with his kids, hanging out, is given a message that is very firm, okay? A message that is in your face, a message that is reading your mail, a message that is looking at the people of Israel and saying, I know you don't like what I'm saying to you, but this is the truth. And it's coming from a rather mild-mannered person. So that's some ideas about the person of Jeremiah and the office of a prophet. Now, in this office as a prophet, these, they kind of come in four categories as far as the messages of a prophet. One is indictment, okay? They bring a formal accusation against the accused. Okay, so that we kind of know the idea of an indictment. So there's a category of judgment. Because you did X, here is the judgment because you did X. And then there's instruction. Okay, I'm an authority over you. Here is the accusation. 
Here's the judgment. Here's some instruction. Because I'm a good coach, because I'm a good God, because I'm a good teacher, I'm going to instruct you on how to rebound from your dysfunction. So you can get back in my good graces, get back on playing time, get back on the stage, whatever the case may be. Here's some instructions. And the last category is aftermath, like prophecies that are after, aftermath, or you could say oracles that are aftermath oracles. And it's going to say, hey, based on my instruction, if you do X, here is how it's going to turn out. Based on my instruction, if you do Y, this is how it's going to turn out. So, book of Jeremiah, the man Jeremiah, categories of prophecy. So these are a few things that I want you to think about when we keep going through this book. But for right now, I want you to open up your ears and take a listen carefully to this song. All right. Can anybody, which I'm guessing you can, can anybody tell me the artist and, of course, the song title? But you got to raise both hands. No one? Artist and song title? Do you got both, Josiah? Yeah, I got both. Uh, Looks like we're dying, Chris Allen. Thank you, thank you. Okay. Sour worms, right? Some traditions are good. I always bring candy when I come to chapel. So. Oh, okay. Now, since I, I thought that'd be a more popular song, but, so I was wrong. So this next question might be even tougher. Can anybody tell me where this artist got their break? Yes, American Idol. Uh-huh. Oh, man, that was a good throw. That was a good toss. And you can share them, open up and share if you, if you like, okay? So you might think, why in the world is he playing that song? There's, the hook of it is going to tie into the end of our time together. But also, we talked a little bit about athletics, right? But arts is also a massive, massive, massive part of our culture, right? Arts and athletics are on the top of the list as far as what drives our culture day in and day out. Sure, there are other things. There are politics, geo-economical things. There's political things that are part of our culture. But day in and day out, arts and athletics are big, big, big pieces of what we do and how we do most things. American Idol ran for 15 seasons. They might run for another, might cancel, whatever. They're just kind of thinking about it, whatever. 15 seasons. It was a juggernaut. 2009 or so, it started to kind of slip a little bit. But it was a juggernaut. They had over 100 songs in the top 25. The crazy thing about it is, Sometimes, do we idolize things maybe, ha <laughs> pun intended, right? Idolize things that maybe can't really affect us the way that we hope they would affect us? Granted, music is very powerful. Art is very powerful. Athletics is very powerful. We find our identity very often in sports. We find our identity very often in our art- artistic ex- expression. Sometimes we want to get hyped up for a game. We put on certain music and we're like, yeah. Yeah, you know, we, we, we get hyped up. It either makes us angry or it focuses us. Sometimes we're feeling like, man, life is just really too hard. We put on certain music and it just calms us. It relaxes us. We're like, yeah, okay, it ain't that bad. It ain't that bad. You know, maybe some of us draw. Maybe some of us do poetry. Maybe some of us sketch. Maybe some of us do whatever we do. Maybe we go shoot free throws. I'm making 100 in a row in my lifetime. You know, we're, 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 there's certain things that we do and we, and we run to... And sometimes we begin to idolize them. We attribute more value, more worth, more worth-ship to them than they should hold. The funny thing is, God delights in our creativity, right? The Bible says very clearly that God created us, that we're created in his image, and I believe he delights in our creative expression, the uniqueness of your imagination, your ability to put things on paper, to put things in athletic competition, to put things on a stage, to build, to create, to somehow live out your insides on the outside and share them with other people. I believe God delights in that. What he doesn't delight in so much is when we begin to value those things we create more so than the creator who created us 
and gave us the ability to create in the first place. That's where he begins to have a problem. And I think it's four things that kind of maybe take us to a place where we begin to value things in a way that maybe they shouldn't be valued is because I think we're searching for all of us as human beings, regardless of race, creed, socioeconomic status, education, any of those things. We want significance. We want to be significant. We want to be significant in our world. We want to be significant in our occupation. We want to be respected. We want to have some type of significance. We want to be able to give significance to someone else, right? I think we want security. We want to know that when we open the refrigerator, things are cold. That when we turn on the faucet where there's hot or cold, we have hot or cold water. We want to be able to know that we can go down to Dillon's or to a supermarket, a supermarket or a super Walmart and buy food that's good and that we can eat and that we can cook. We don't have, want to have to worry about walking down the street, looking over our shoulder, wondering if there's going to be violence that's coming our way. We want to be able to take our kids to the park or go with our nieces or nephews and run around barefooted in the grass and not worry about something crazy happening. We want some level of security. I think we want some level of satisfaction out of our academic pursuits, out of our artistic pursuits, out of our relational pursuits. We want some type of satisfaction. Granted, contentment is the biblical goal, and we might see it more so as satisfaction, right? Maybe we're not satisfied with certain things in life. And also, I think we want to pursue sanity, right? We want the world to make sense. We want one plus one plus one to at least equal three. When it equals four and a half, we're like, hey, we came out on top. When it equals two or negative one, we're like, man, the world is just crazy. What's going on? My investments aren't... Go- I, I, I seem to be doing life in a way that just doesn't make sense. I mean, if something doesn't go right here pretty soon, I'm going to go insane, so sometimes when these things begin to get compromised, our idea about sanity, about satisfaction, about security, and about significance, when those things begin to get compromised, we begin to f- try to find ways to fill that void and to fill those gaps. And I think that's what the people of Israel were dealing with as well in Jeremiah's day, when they began to idolize things other than the God who created them. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. We're going to read the whole passage. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king at this wrath at his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he, 
Rishon inclusion here, Yahweh, Jehovah, God, who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is of the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. This passage, 1 through 16, is very meaty, of course. Lots of things, a lot of directions we could go. Basically, what we have is a conversation between God and Jeremiah, and it's somehow communicated to the leadership of Jerusalem. And what we have at this time, if you can kind of imagine in your brain, think about the Middle East, we have Israel, right? This land mass, this stretch of land, pretty thin, and it's right now the kingdom is divided in half. So Israel is divided. The south is Judah and the north is Israel. Kind of like the United States was when it was like blue in the north, right? The Yankees and in the south, the Confederates. It's kind of like that. It was a divided nation. Well, it was basically exactly like that. It was a divided nation. Okay. And what is happening at this time is the nation of Babylon is, has grown. It took over the Assyrian empire and they're coming from the northeast. So this arm is Israel. They're coming from the northeast, and they want, to acu- they want to occupy and take over this entire land mass and the people group and all the unimaginable natural wealth of this region. They want to continue to expand their empire and annex the rest, basically, of Israel. Take Judah and Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah. And then Egypt is, like, down here. We all kind of know where Egypt is. We kind of just think about it a little bit. And they're coming from the south. And the Israelites, particularly Judah and Jerusalem, they're trying to make these kind of weird alliances and treaties with Egypt to kind of combat the Babylonians. So there's a lot of political intrigue. And at this time, unlike us, who it's hard for us, I think, to identify with the fact that for us, food, clothing, shelter, and water are pretty normal. All of us in this room have probably, can't say for sure, but most likely have always had those things. Some of us a lot more than others. Some of us maybe had times when all we had was tomato soup for a couple weeks. We've all kind of have different stories, right? We all have kind of different stories. But for the most part, we've had food, clothing, shelter, and water accessible. And this time, that wasn't guaranteed. Your your, your day-to-day food, clothing, water, shelter was in question for the majority of people. So not only was there basic necessities being compromised, but now you have invading armies coming in and saying, well, we're going to, we're going to kill people. We're going to take over. We're going to take you away. We're going to destroy your ability to get the little things that you can. So the reason I want to bring this to bear is because this is the time that Jeremiah is speaking into. But I also want us to be able to identify with the people and think, well, maybe I can empathize with why they might begin to worship other things. If I am being threatened on a day-to-day basis and I can't fulfill the basic needs of my life and things aren't going well, I'm investing in certain ways and these certain ways don't seem to be working, but they're getting worse. I might be like, well, um, maybe if I worship the God, the Babylonian people are worshiping, maybe things might go better for me. Um, so maybe I'll bow to their God too. Well, you know, Egypt seems to be doing pretty well, and, and um, I'm not doing too good with this whole Jehovah thing. So maybe I'll, yeah, the Amun-Ra, yeah, sun god, yes, bless my harvest time. Can I get water tomorrow? So we can kind of see that if their security is being compromised, we can see where human, be- human beings might turn to anything possible to somehow gain a little bit of security. 
So I don't want to just vilify them as human beings. Maybe you can kind of look and say, okay, well, maybe if their security is being compromised, we can see how they might begin to doubt and say, um, maybe we can begin to adopt some of the practices of these other kingdoms that seem to be doing really well and begin to syncretize the idea of syncretism, big kind of educational word, where we're going to adopt the practices of other neighboring faiths into our own and say, hey, we're going to put these gods, these Egyptian gods, these Babylonian gods, Marduk being one of them, the sun god, and maybe this idea of Osiris, right? Amun-Ra of the Egyptians. We're going to put them on the same level as Jehovah. We're just going to kind of worship all of them. And they had normal practices, right? Just kind of like burning incense, you know, sacrificing animals, bowing down to the statue. That was kind of normal to them because the Israelites, they bowed towards the temple and prayed. So those are kind of like the normal kind of things. But then there was like child sacrifice, right? And then there's this idea of like temple prostitution. You hear that kind of pretty often probably, right? Like, hey, we're going to go to church today. And man, I can't wait, right? So this, this idea of drastic extremes, but they weren't the biggest, most difficult part. It was the normal kind of everyday things. Because most people weren't attracted to the extreme measures. Like, hey, the whole band of Judah, we're all going to run to temple prostitution. That wasn't, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like the, the majority of people were going there. The idea more, the, the subtle things that took their attention away from God. That took their attention away from the things that they were supposed to be doing. Exalting God and God alone as the one who brought them out of Egypt. As the one who provided for their needs. As the one who was there for them through the thick and through the thin. Through the, through the thin. So we can kind of see, I think, and emphasize with them as we kind of see their security being compromised. How they might go off into some other places with their worship. Now, I want to ask you this. Do you ever kind of go off into other places? Do you ever kind of maybe put more time into things that maybe you probably shouldn't, or if you maybe you know better, but yet you kind of are drawn to them anyway? That maybe I should be doing X, but maybe I kind of sway to Y and Z because of extenuating circumstances. Maybe life isn't quite going your way, and we decide to kind of maybe move in another direction. What becomes your sanctuary when things get really, really tough? Right? When people say when things get really, really tough, you find out who you really are. You find out what you really believe. My time at Stony College has been rough. Most people probably wouldn't think that because you have a pretty positive attitude, but it has been really hard on me personally. But you figure out what you're really made of when things aren't quite right. When things just don't work quite like you thought they would. So where do you run to? Is it a person? Is it a habit? Is it a substance? Where do you run? We all run to something. We're all human beings. I'm not pointing a finger because if I point a finger at you, how many I got pointing back at me? Well, six right now, but yeah. Three, right? So I'm not pointing a finger. I'm just saying, hey, this is, where we are. This is real life. So we can kind of see how they might go off to other things. But God loves them so much. He sends Jeremiah into that mix and says, hey, wait a minute. All those things you're investing in, they are wood. They're things you're created. Matter of fact, I created you. I gave you the imagination by which you could create them. And actually, they look kind of neat. And it's kind of interesting that you can create that. And you even overlaid it with gold and took the precautions to nail it down so it wouldn't fall over. That's pretty innovative. But you shouldn't be worshiping it. It has no life in it. It has no breath in it. It can't provide for you. It doesn't matter how many free throws you make in a row. At some point, we constantly see people who make it to the top, get to the top. And what do they say? I wish somebody would have told me there's nothing here. 
I hear that all the time. I hear that all the time. So my question is, where do we run? Where do we run when our things get really tough? When the sanctu- what becomes our sanctuary when times get really, really, really dire? So I want to take a look at Jeremiah verse or 2, verse 2 particularly. This is the only place in this passage where we get an instruction. Okay, we talked about instruction, uh, oracles, we talked about judgment, oracles. We get an instruction. It says, thus says the Lord, learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. The only instruction we get out of the 16 verses is, hey, don't do what they do. Don't bow to Marduk. Don't child sacrifice. Don't put those gods on the same level as me, because there's no life in them, there's no breath in them. This is the one instruction I'm giving you. Don't be someone who adopts those practices because there's no life in them. We go on to verse 3 through 5, and it tells us why. He says, for the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of the craftsmen. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nail so it, doesn't, so it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. So he is telling them very clearly, the reason I don't want you to invest yourself in these things that have no life is because they can give you no life. If you want significance in your life, you're not going to find it in a practice of something. If you do, it's going to be temporary. It's going to be temporary. Again, why do we see people who are uber successful always getting into other things. You would think they'd be satisfied to have everything a person could want. All the money, all the success, all the fame, all the acclaim, all the material wealth anybody could ever want, and yet they're doing crazy stuff. Like, bruh, if I had 10% of what you had, I'm, I'm good. I'm Jeremiah sitting by the pool with my kids, hanging out. So if you do find significance, it's only going to be temporary. But he's saying right here, hey, don't learn those ways. There's no life in them. Do not run to them. So now, you might be thinking, you know, God's just this egomaniacal, narcissistic tyrant that wants everybody to worship him. Bow down to me. Worship me. I need your worship. I want you to worship me because I need you to stroke my ego. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible would be no worse or no better whether we worshiped him or not. He'd be no worse or better whether he saved us or not. He'd be no more holy or no less holy if he saved us or not. He says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, the one who exists. Austin paraphrase. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And you hear that and you think, man, this God of the Bible, something's wrong with him. He just wants to be worshipped. Seems like he's just always crying out, worship me, worship me. What's his problem? That actually is a reasonable question. So if you've asked that question, don't feel bad. Do you think God has hadn't, heard, hadn't heard that question before? Do you think he hasn't been doubted before? Do you think people hasn't, haven't doubted his character all throughout history? He's not averse to questions like that. We just simply need to look at him a little more closely. So here's where we need to lock back in. Because your thinking is important. How you think about God is probably the most important thoughts you will ever have in your entire life. Because they will dictate every choice that you make when you begin to boil down your choices and boil down the things that you've thought about and the choices you make, at some point, if you critically consider and evaluate yourself and the choices you make, it's all going to come down to, do you believe God exists? And if you do, what is he like? 
It's all going to come back to there. So we're going to look at three points very fast. You think I'm going fast now? I'm going to go even faster because we've got to get out on time. Okay, so God is transcendent. Big definition, but I want to read it, and I want you to just, we're not going to talk about it very much, but I just want you to think about it. The word transcendent comes from a Latin term meaning to climb over or to go beyond. It describes a relationship between two entities, one of which transcends or goes beyond the other. In theology, it describes the most basic relationship between God and his creatures. That's important. Relationship between God and his creatures. God as creator transcends all created beings in the sense that he is distinct from them in a very essence of his being. God is beyond the universe and every created entity. This beyondness of God is an ontological concept, i.e. the study of the nature of being, not a spatial concept. God's transcendence does not mean he is somehow spatially up yonder or outside of his creation, as if theoretically we could travel to the far distant edge of the universe, take one step beyond it, and find God. Rather, it has to do with the essence of his being, which is not only spirit, but uncreated spirit. That's a critical point. Because all of us are created. We are contingent upon something else, right? God of the Bible always existed, and he's the only being in existence whose existence is predicated upon himself. That's key. Transcendent. So if you say, why does God say, I will not allow my glory to be given to anyone else, and especially not carved idols, he is totally, utterly different and beyond us. You would think that if you were in debt, do you go to someone who's in more debt than you to say, hey, can I get a loan? Like, we don't do that, right? Typically, if we have money problems, or if I have, I mean, I've known Coach Jason for many, many, many years, and even though we don't talk as much as we used to, often, maybe about five, six years ago, if I, had a re- if I was kind of like really, really struggling with the choice, I'd say, hey, Co- you know, Coach, you know, Coach Jay, or say, yo, yo, what's up, Dean? You got 15 minutes? Because I see him as a man who has more experience than I do. He has a family. He has a wife and sons who are, are, are admirable citizens, honorable people. So he's got a lot of wisdom that I don't have. So I go to someone who I can look to and say, hey, in some regard, in some fashions, you are more than I am in some regard. So I'm going to go to you to try to, in a sense, say, how can you help me? Typically, if we're in debt, we don't go to someone who's in worse shape than us necessarily, right? So God is saying, hey, I'm transcendent. I am totally other and distinctly different from anything in my creation. Thus, to worship me is common sense. Why would you worship or value something as far as looking for sanity, significance, security, and um, satisfaction that's lesser than what you are? You feel like you're in debt. You're having problems with something. You go to something that is less able and less capable than you. So the first thing, God's transcendence. Second thing, he's imminent. Imminence is the attribute of God that describes his presence and activity within his created world. This is what we see him doing here in Jeremiah. He is taking the time, making the effort to be actively involved. A lot of people think that God is just somewhere out there and he kind of just said, hey, I'll just you know, hit this wheel of fortune wheel and this is just going to spin forever and I'll turn my back and go play Jeopardy. But he's imminent which means he's actively involved not only in the, his creation, but also in the lives of his people. He's saying, hey, Israel, Judah, Jeremiah, here's my instruction. Here's my judgment. Here's my aftermath. Here's what I'm telling you to do. I'm accusing you of these things because your sin is before me, and I want you in right relationship my, with myself, so how are you going to respond? I'm imminently involved in my creation. And the last thing, the idea that he is immutable or unchanging. 
God does not and cannot change, essentially, i.e., he is unchanging in his essence and character, but may change in his consciousness and activities. Stay with me. By consciousness, we mean that God experiences the succession of moments taking place in his own history and in ours. He acts, is acted upon, and reacts. His experiences, he experiences different feelings or emotions in response to events in the history of his free will, key point, his free will creatures, us. Especially, he experiences suffering in response to our sin and in the events of his incarnation particularly the cross. So God doesn't change in his essence. Always good, right? Always all-powerful. Never weaker or never weak, right? Always true. Always wise. Always present. Always great. Always merciful. Always forgiven. Always wrathful. Always vengeful. He's always in his essence the same. Uncreated infinite spirit being at the same time it's very clear in scripture that he responds to how we respond to him if he didn't how could he in a sense say here are instructions if you do x i will do this if you do y i will do this obviously he is responding to our free will choices so before we go off on this hinge and say god's some crazy narcissistic egomaniac maniac tyrant What we see more clearly is that God is transcendent. He's completely, utterly different. Thus, to worship him is reasonable. Because we're going to go somewhere that has the power and the authority to act upon our lives in the way that we need it most. Secondly, the idea that he is imminent. He is intimately involved. He is acting in this world to draw people unto himself and to redeem all things unto himself. And thirdly, the fact that he doesn't change. So if he ever loved, he always loved. If he was ever gracious, he's always gracious. If he was ever forgiving, he's always forgiving. If he's ever true, he's always true. If he's ever going to judge, he's always going to judge. If he's ever wrathful, he's always going to be wrathful. So it's not like you can sweep that sin under the door. Every time, he's going to call us into question, why? Because he wants us to be in right relationship with him. He wanted his people in Jerusalem and Judah to be in right relationship with him and not to be in captivity, not to be taken away, not to be deported, not to be enslaved, not to worship false gods that can't bring them any satisfaction. It's like Mick Jagger, right? No, I can't get no, man, y'all killing a brother, right? Satisfaction, because I try and I try and I try. Those three things, if we leave with those three things and say, hey, man, you know, God delights in our expression. God delights in our creativity. God delights in the things that you create. God delights with your activity in the field, or if you're in the army, I guess, in the field, on the field, on the court, on the course, on the stage, in the lab. God delights in those creative expressions. He delights in those things that you can do. He smiles upon it. He helps you do it. But when we begin to worship those things and to find our identity in those things, to go to them for sanctuary, they draw us away from the very thing that can give us life. That's what the Israelites were doing at this time. That's what they're doing throughout biblical history. And guess what? We do the same things. Father, thank you for the people that were here today. I pray that your word was spoken in a way that you approve of and that we come to worship you in a way that you have prescribed, in a way that you are honored, in a way that you are praised, in a way that you are glorified. I thank you that these students who are here today would take a little something somewhere in there and say, you know what? 
I'm going to think about that. Whether they call themselves Christians, whether they don't call themselves Christians, they're somewhere on the continuum, wherever they are in their faith and in their life and their journey of faith, I pray that something today will kind of hit them. And something today will, will touch them. Whether it's the ideas about who you are, whether it's the ideas of the things that we put our faith in that aren't you, that aren't going to give us life, whatever it is, I pray that you will reach into them and provoke their thinking, get inside their hearts, Father, and just bring them closer to you. Bring them one step, two steps, three steps, wherever they're, whatever they're willing to do, however they're willing to draw near to you, I pray that you'll bring them to you and that they'll be willing to come. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it's your mighty and precious name that I pray. Amen.